Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Today, we are back in our study of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible handy, head there as we begin again by reading our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we start with verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. For close to 2,000 years, our text before us has brought about much confusion. The sad truth is, more Jews have been killed in the name of Christ than for any other reason. And a false understanding of our text before us has been a large part of the reason. And the documentation of this on the pages of history should be appalling to any man or woman who professes to love the Word of God. Now, before we get started, I need you to listen to me carefully. I'm about to list out some quotes of some horrible, horrific things that have been said about the Jews throughout church history. If I happen to quote your favorite dead white guy from church history, understand this is not to attack them. But this is just for us all to get a better understanding of the things that have been done and said in the name of Christ. Now, this hatred for the Jews actually started way back in the early stages of the Roman Catholic Church. Two of the main reasons for the persecution of the Jews has been first because people have looked at verses 14 through 16 in our text, and they felt that it is the church's responsibility to punish the Jews for killing Christ. And second, what is now known as replacement theology. It's an old bag of tricks. It's a false teaching that has been around for hundreds of years. And the idea, the belief, is that because the Jews rejected the Messiah, the teaching is that the covenant promises of God with Israel are no longer valid. So out of this comes the belief that the church, the body of Christians, is the new spiritual Israel. And it has been taught over the centuries that it is now the church's responsibility to triumph over the Jews. Just listen to a few examples from church history which spells out this hatred for the Jews. John Chrysostom lived from 347 to 407 AD. One of his areas of weakness was in regard to the Jews. Listen to what he wrote. The synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, and the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house 
worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of inequity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and an abyss of perdition. And then he said, quote, I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews for the same reason. Augustine, living around the same time, listen to his words about the Jews. How hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. And then writing about the Jews, he said, How I wish that you would slay them with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. Peter the Venerable from the 12th century Catholic Church. Peter was very important in shaping the Catholic Church in his day. He was said to have been the model of Christian love. Peter said of the Jews, Yes, you Jews, I say, do I address you, you who till this very day deny the Son of God. How long, poor wretches, will ye not believe the truth? Truly, I doubt whether a Jew can be really human. I lead out from its den a monstrous animal and show it as a laughing stock in the amphitheater of the world. In the sight of all the people, I bring thee forward, thou Jew, thou brute beast, in the sight of all men. In the early years of Martin Luther, he favored the Jews. But as the Jews continued to reject the Reformed gospel, he turned on them and became one of the leading figures in all of history with his vile hatred of the Jews. Listen to his own words, his own answer to the question of what to do with the Jews. Luther said, let me give you my honest advice. First, their synagogue should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt, so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable. Think carefully of what Luther was saying. He advocated making the Jews live in buildings like a stable. And then Luther said, third, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourth, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more. Fifth, Passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. Luther taught that the government should confiscate Jewish property and should force the Jews to do physical labor. At one point in time, Luther wrote, quote, I would threaten to cut their tongues from their throats if they refuse to acknowledge the truth that God is a trinity and not a plain unity. In his own words, Luther said, They are the devil's children damned to hell. Martin Luther preached his last sermon against the Jews, and then he died four days later. Fast forward in time a few centuries, in 1924, at a so-called Christian gathering in Berlin, Adolf Hitler stood before thousands of men and women who professed to be Christians. He received a standing ovation, and then he said to them, I believe that today I am acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God as I announce the most important work that Christians could undertake, and that is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once and for all. We are doing the work of the Lord, and let's get on with it. Listen closely. No one here is suggesting that Luther was responsible for the actions of Hitler. But I will tell you, 
history teaches that Hitler did use Luther's own words to justify his actions. Hitler said once, quote, Martin Luther has been the greatest encouragement of my life. Luther was a great man. He was a giant. With one blow, he heralded the coming of the new dawn and the new age. Listen to this. He saw clearly that the Jews needed to be destroyed and were only beginning to see that we need to carry this work on. Hitler actually followed Luther's advice on how to deal with the Jews. After the war, one Nazi leader, a man by the name of Stryker, said at his Nuremberg trial, I have never said anything that Martin Luther did not say. John Calvin once said about the Jews, Their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. On and on we could go to the Crusades and the mass murder of the Jews. In the 14th century, the Jews were blamed for the Black Plague, and as a result, many were put to death. In the early part of the 13th century, Pope Innocent III wasn't so innocent. He convened a council, and the end result is that the Jews were forced to live in the ghettos and wear uniforms. Keep in mind, I'm not talking about Nazi Germany. I'm talking about the Church of Rome in the 13th century, forcing Jews to live in the ghettos and wear uniforms. All the while, they were still forced to pay taxes, which supported the Roman Catholic Church. This is the short list of the atrocities that have been committed against the Jews. And so much of it comes about from a false understanding of the text before us. In no way does this passage or any passage in the Word of God teach that we are to hate the Jews. This text, this passage, is simply a picture of all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The only proper attitude for those in Christ is to love the Jews, to have compassion on them. And the balance that we must walk is to stand against the Jewish religion which has rejected Christ, but we must love the Jewish people and continue to share the message of redemption with them. We look again at our text where we read in verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Think of the wording used. We thank God without ceasing. Paul and Silas continually thank God for how these Christians had first received the gospel of Christ. Again, we are confronted with the question of how often it is that we thank God for how our brothers and sisters in Christ received the gospel of Christ. They had an attitude of gratitude for the great work which God had done. Pay attention to the powerful wording of this verse. Part of the wording means these individuals had an intellectual understanding of the gospel. They heard the message and understood it. But part of the wording used here means that not only did they understand the gospel of Christ, but they received it as truth. They embraced it. They welcomed it into their lives. Notice the emphasis by Paul that Paul and Silas were just the messengers where Paul tells them, which you heard from us because the gospel itself came from God. Paul tells them they received the word of God. These men and women understood that the gospel of Christ is not just the words of men, 
We've looked before at the words of Paul in Galatians 1, where he said, The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the same point that Paul was driving home here in our text. Think back to the context. Paul and Silas were on the defense. Men had come in and had tried to undermine the faith of those at Thessalonica by attacking the messengers, Paul and Silas. You know, the Greek schools of philosophy produced the wisdom of men, and the religious con men would travel from town to town, preaching for a few hours and looking for money. Paul and Silas came to town, but they had something different. It does not matter if men reject it. It does not matter if people don't believe it. None of these things can change the truth that the gospel of Christ is God's word. But those in Christ at Thessalonica, they didn't have to take Paul's word for it. They had proof because the gospel of Christ had done a mighty work in their lives. They had become a new creation in Christ. The spirit of God was indwelling them and the word of God continued to transform them more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The word of God is consistent. The gospel of Christ transforms men and women. It continues to work in the lives of those who believe as men and women walk by faith. Hebrews 4.12 should come to mind. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Listen to what Peter teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the gospel of Christ. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Let us not belittle the gospel of Christ. It's not even close to being on the same playing field as the religions of men. It's not even close to being on the same playing field as the philosophies of men. You know, it's been rightly said that the gospel is not the kind of message that a man would invent if he could, and nor is it a message that he could invent if he would. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, it offers men and women something that nothing else in this world can offer. It offers redemption. It offers new life in Christ. And in order to accomplish this, it truly must be of God. Those in Christ at Thessalonica, those in Christ today. We know and understand the working power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we've seen it at work in our own lives. At Thessalonica, remember Paul had just finished describing everything that the gospel of Christ had accomplished. These men and women turned from idols to the living God. These men and women became known throughout the land for sharing the gospel of Christ. And these men and women had turned from the dead religions of men and were now looking up, waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They now had hope in Christ. This is all a result of the gospel of Christ. This is all a result of the word of God at work in their lives. The change that should come about in your life as a result of the gospel of Christ is the evidence that we have that the gospel is in fact from God. But notice this last statement in verse 13 again, speaking here of the gospel of Christ. Paul tells them, which also effectively works in you who believe. We have both the power of God at work in the message of redemption, and we have the human responsibility in those who believe. 
And if you break this statement down, we have the condition in which the Word of God, we have the condition in which the gospel of Christ can operate in the hearts of men. It works effectively in those who believe. Listen carefully. Faith conditions its effectiveness. Faith conditions its effectiveness. There must be not only a hearing of the gospel, but there must be faith. The power of God is released through faith in his word. Paul tells the church, it effectively works in you who believe. You see, the Christians at Thessalonica, especially the Gentile Christians, could sit and contrast the pure word of God. They could sit and contrast the gospel of Christ and its transforming effect upon their lives to the pagan religions around them, which led people down a path of perversion and immorality. The Jewish believers could contrast the love and the grace of God in the gospel of Christ to the legalism and the pride that came about in the Jewish religion. And we should be able to contrast the pure gospel of grace with all the philosophies and all the religions of our day. The unmistakable contrast is clear. Nothing can come close to the message of the grace of God. But notice something else in this verse before we move on. Paul wrote, you who believe in the present tense, meaning salvation is by faith and sanctification is by faith. Paul is telling us that these believers in Christ at Thessalonica continued to walk by faith in Christ. They continued to abide in his word. Take a look at verse 14. Here's the start of the verses that men love to take out of context and twist the meaning in regard to the Jews. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Notice the first two words of the verse, for you, connecting us back, tying us back to the verse before. The suffering, the persecution they faced, it was proof that the gospel of Christ was working in their lives. If they were still men and women of the world, they would be welcomed and admired by the world. But now, they belong to Christ, and they face the hatred of those who hated the living Christ. Break this verse down. Paul was telling them that they were following the pattern of the churches in Judea because they were suffering for the gospel just like those in Judea. But why Judea? Why did Paul mention the example of the churches in Judea? Well, I think the reason is because by pointing to the suffering of the churches in Judea, by pointing to the suffering of those who first responded to the gospel, Paul was in effect telling them that from the very beginning, Christians had been suffering for their faith in Christ Jesus. This wasn't something new. This wasn't something that should have been a surprise to anyone. Those in Christ at Thessalonica could take comfort that they were not alone. Those who receive the word of God, the gospel of grace, are united with the people of God and will be hated by the unredeemed. Paul himself probably had a different perspective than most of being able to teach about what the churches of Judea had gone through because Paul himself was one of the people who had caused much of the suffering. 
You see, Paul could stand shoulder to shoulder with these brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them that he was one of those who used to be about the business of persecuting the church. Those in Christ in Judea suffered at the hands of the unbelieving Jews. Those in Christ at Thessalonica also suffered from their own countrymen. And we know from Acts of persecution at Thessalonica, it started with the unbelieving Jews, and then it spread to the Gentiles. The response of the believer in Christ should be the words of 1 Peter 4.16, where it says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now take another look at verses 15 and 16, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, this is the strongest words recorded in any of Paul's letters about the work of the Jews. And we talked at length about the great number of men throughout history who have misunderstood these statements. Some people feel that the wording used by Paul is so strong that someone must have added them to this text and that the Apostle Paul would have never said these words. The key to understanding this passage is not in taking these verses out and tampering with the Word of God, but instead let's take a careful look at the flow of thought and the situation that Paul found himself in. The book of Acts reveals to us that Paul had been hounded by the Jews from city to city. They had been hostile. They had tried to kill Paul. At every turn, they had tried to stop the spread of the gospel of Christ. But Paul's statements in these verses isn't so much about what they had done to him, but instead it is the condemnation of their opposition to the work of God. And if you notice carefully what Paul is doing in this text, it is that he is demonstrating to the church at Thessalonica that this has been the pattern of the Jews over the centuries. Their rejection of the work of God. It reached its peak with the violent rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost. As a Jewish believer, he said to the men of Israel that Jesus delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. At the time of this being written, we are a little less than 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And Paul places the guilt squarely on the shoulders of the Jews. Paul knew that we all share responsibility because it is our sin that made his death necessary. Paul knew that the Roman soldiers, Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, all had a role to play in the death of Jesus. But Paul, Paul saw that the chief responsibility fell on the Jews because the Jews used Pilate to bring about the death of the one they hated. Just as the Jews had used the Gentiles at Thessalonica to stir up trouble, it was the Jewish people who had rejected their king and his kingdom. Remember what the Jews said to Pilate in Matthew 27, 25 about Christ, his blood be on us and on our children. Paul is simply saying that it was the Jews in Judea who demanded Jesus' death on the cross. Paul's attitude was not one of hatred, but of love. In Romans 9, Paul testified, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, 
my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Paul wanted those of the physical seed of Israel to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they were hostile to the gospel of grace. Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Paul knew better than most the opposition of the Jews. It was the Jews who had killed the prophets. It was the Jews who had demanded the death of Jesus. It was the Jews who hounded the apostle Paul from city to city as he sought to spread the gospel of grace. The only logical conclusion that you could make about those who consistently oppose the work of Christ is that they do not please God, which is exactly what Paul teaches us. Over in Romans 10, Paul testified that the Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We have a bad break here in the text between verse 15 and verse 16. This statement that the Jews are contrary to all men, it doesn't mean that the Jews were hostile towards every person. Paul explains what he meant in the first part of verse 16, where he tells us that the Jews were forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Listen closely. Here was the sticking point. It wasn't just the opposition in Judea. It was among the Gentiles. You see, we know at this point in history that the Jews were actively trying to convert Gentiles to the Jewish faith all throughout the Roman Empire at the different local synagogues. But a very real part of what bothered the Jews so much about the ministry of Paul and Silas is that they offered salvation to the Gentiles without first demanding that they become Jews. The Jews were jealous. The Jews were trying to rob the Gentiles of the salvation in Christ, which they themselves had rejected. You see, the problem is when men reject the gospel of Christ, they not only bring about their own damnation, but they also try to get in the way of the redemption of others. Paul's frustration with the Jews was that not only were they affecting their own salvation, but their opposition to the gospel of Christ had eternal consequences for the Gentiles. And this is why Paul could say, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. The Jews killed the prophets. They killed their long-awaited Messiah. And now they just added to their sins by seeking to stop the gospel of Christ. Now, don't miss this. This will become important in a second. The wording used here to fill up the measure of their sins, the wording used is of the image of a cup being slowly filled. The image given is that the cup is not filled just yet, but it is getting there. Each act of hostility towards the gospel and the work of God by the Jews fills the cup just a little more and a little more. And the wording used in this passage gives us a clear understanding that there is a certain amount of rebellion. There's a certain amount of wickedness that the Lord will allow until the cup is full and his judgment and his wrath comes forward. And this is exactly what Paul tells us by stating, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You cannot expect to kill the prophets of God. You cannot expect to kill the Messiah. And you cannot expect to block the gospel at every single turn and not invoke the wrath of God. Notice the careful wording. But wrath has come. At first glance, this seems to be something that had already started. Let's put together what we do know. 
John 3.36 teaches that whoever does not believe the Son, the wrath of God already, already abides on him. God's wrath is already present on those who do not believe. Also keep in mind that this was written in 51 A.D. In 49 A.D., only two years before this, the Jews suffered at the hands of the Romans. We know in 49 A.D. they were kicked out of the city of Rome. And we also know in that same year, there was a massacre of thousands of Jews at the temple during the Passover celebration. Some put the estimates between 20,000 to 30,000 Jews that were killed during this time. We know that just 19 years after Paul wrote this, in 70 AD, the Roman legions under Titus attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Jews were scattered throughout the world, which fulfilled the prediction of Christ himself in Matthew 23 and 24. But I really don't think that this is the context here. I really don't think that this is what Paul had in mind. Think back to verse 10 of chapter 1. The Christians at Thessalonica were waiting for the Son of God to come for them from heaven. In other words, they were waiting for the rapture of the church, the rescue of the bride of Christ, because Christ will deliver the church from the wrath to come. Again, thinking of the broader context of 1 Thessalonians, we remember the words coming up in chapter 5, verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is referring to unbelieving Jews in chapter 2. For those of you that are familiar with Daniel 9, remember that the 70th week of Daniel 9, just like the first 69 weeks, this is a time of judgment for Israel, not for the church. The church of Christ did not exist in Daniel 9. The church of Christ was not a part of the 69 weeks of Daniel 9, and the church will not be a part of the 70th week of Daniel 9. During this time, the nation of Israel will face the wrath of God. Think back to the text we looked at before in Revelation 6. The context is the tribulation. The seals are being opened and judgment is coming upon the face of the earth. And the text there teaches and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Listen to what they will say at that time. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Here's the point. The broader context throughout 1 Thessalonians and throughout 2 Thessalonians is that when Paul was speaking of wrath, he was speaking of the wrath of God poured out on this world during the tribulation. But here in our text, it states, wrath has come upon them. I think the best way to understand this is that God's wrath was already upon the Jews for the rejection of the Messiah. His wrath was present, but the full manifestation of that wrath will not come until the tribulation. The intent of the Apostle Paul was to remind the church of the fate of the Jews. The Jews rejected Christ. The Jews were opposing the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, which meant that they had a dark future in store for them because they were facing the judgment of God. And the picture given is that the hammer of God's judgment is ready to fall upon the nation of Israel at any moment. There's an amazing 
but true story about a boy who suffered under the Nazis during World War II. This Jewish boy was living in a small Polish village when he and all the other Jews living in the area were rounded up by the Nazi SS troops and were sentenced to death. This boy joined the rest of the Jews in digging a shallow ditch that would be their grave. Then they were lined up against a wall and gunned down by a machine gun. Their dead bodies fell into the shallow grave and the Nazis covered their bodies with dirt. But something amazing happened. Not one of the bullets hit this little boy. His naked body was covered with the blood of his parents. And when his parents fell over into the ditch, he pretended to be dead and fell on top of them. The dirt thrown on top of them by the SS troops was so thin it didn't stop the boy from getting enough air. Several hours went by, and when the darkness of night finally came, this ten-year-old boy clawed his way out of the shallow grave. His little body was covered with blood and dirt. He made his way to the nearest house, and he begged for help. But the woman who answered the door recognized him as one of the Jewish boys marked for death by the SS. So she screamed at him to go away and slammed a door. This little boy was turned away at the next house and the one after that. In each case, any compassion that the people felt was overcome by the desire to stay out of trouble with the SS. Dirty, covered still in blood and mud, the little boy went from one house to the next, begging for someone to help him. Then the boy changed his approach. When the next family responded to his knocking, he raised the question of how anyone could claim to love Jesus, like so many of the German people claim they did, yet turn him away. And that is really the issue, isn't it? How would Christ want us to treat the Jews? Remember, according to a German census, 94% of the people considered themselves to be a Christian. This time, The woman who stood in the doorway, she didn't slam the door in his face. She wrapped him up in her arms. She kissed him. And from that day on, this family raised and cared for the boy as if he were one of their own. I hope you understand that the message that's being preached is not one that could be taught in many churches today. Covenant theology teaches replacement theology. Instead of asking the question of how Jesus Christ would want us to treat the Jewish people. Instead of looking to the Word of God and believing in a literal interpretation of God's Word, they have invented a theological system that teaches God is once and for all done with the nation of Israel. Much of the professing church would have you believe that the church is now the new spiritual Israel. In Romans 11, Verse 1, Paul asks the question, speaking of Israel, I say then, has God cast away his people? His answer, certainly not. And again, he repeated in verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And if you continue to read in Romans 11, the apostle Paul makes it clear to us that because of the hardness of their hearts, the Jews by and large will continue to reject Christ until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In fact, Romans 11.28 even teaches that concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. There's a problem with the Jewish people. The problem revealed to us in Romans 9 is that Christ is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to them. 
and that Israel has sought righteousness through the law, not by faith. You see, we must understand that a very real function of the church is found in Romans 10.19, where Paul quoted Moses from Deuteronomy 32.21, speaking of Israel, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. See, part of God's plan for the church of Christ is to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. Again, from Romans 11.11, we read, Once again, speaking of Israel, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Listen to this. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul saw his own countrymen as enemies of the gospel of Christ. But his attitude, it was not of hate. His attitude was of love. As an apostle to the Gentiles, his hope was that some of his own countrymen might come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there is another mighty lesson for the church found in Romans 11, because it is there that Paul warned the church about boasting of our position in Christ. You see, Paul warned about pride because this is the same exact trap that the nation of Israel fell into. The warning of Paul for the church is to be careful. Be careful about our complacency. Be careful that we do not fall into pride. And remember our mission to provoke the people of Israel to jealousy by living holy, separated lives unto God, warning men and women of the wrath of God that is to come upon all who reject the Savior, Jesus Christ, always ready to give an answer for the hope within us. Could you recommend a book on church history, The End Times, the Gospel, Commentaries, or a book on how to study the Bible. We get asked this a lot, and so I thought it would be helpful to have an Amazon store with a list of books that have helped me in my own faith. Actually, we opened two, one for Amazon Kindle and one for good old-fashioned hardcover and softcover books. We're adding books every week, and if you buy them through either one of our Amazon stores, we get a little bit to help us keep the lights on and pay the bills. Just visit our webpage, returntotheword.com. Hit the Books tab, and under the menu, both our Amazon store and our Amazon Kindle store will show up. We appreciate your support. You can find out more on returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.
Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 